What's the promise of health information exchange and how do organizations realize that promise? Hi, this is Tom Field, Editorial Director with Information Security Media Group. We're talking about HIE today and talking with Christine Martin Anderson, Senior Vice President, and Timmy Leslie, Vice President with Booz Allen Hamilton. Christine, Timmy, thanks so much for joining me today. Thank you. Now, what's interesting is that the two of you have worked on HIE at another organization since 1997 and actually launched the nation's first health information exchange. Am I right? That's right. Well, then we've got great knowledge here and expertise to talk about the topic today. Christine, I want to lead off with you. We talked about the promise of HIE. What is the real promise of HIE for healthcare organizations? That's a great question. You know, at this point in time, we have near universal agreement in this country that a, a patient-centered healthcare system would result in better coordinated and high-quality care. And it's not hard for anyone to imagine the benefits of that, particularly for patients with chronic or even multiple chronic diseases, um, where the, having their physicians have another channel to efficiently communicate about their care that they're both treating uh, makes a lot of sense. But what we really need health information exchange for is to enable that patient-centric view of a patient's health care, and it really lets us achieve the aims of our health reform efforts. So without health information exchange, and I'm using that as, as a verb in this case, not as a noun, we don't have an integrated longitudinal view of a patient's experience, and we can't evaluate the effectiveness or the efficiency of their care, and we certainly don't have the information required to manage that care in a holistic way. Um, and lastly, but equally important, is the opportunity of health information exchange to improve the patient's experience. Uh, we need to be honest about the current state and admit that today each patient is their own health information exchange. They carry their information from physician to physician imperfectly. They coordinate the care between the caregivers imperfectly. And I would personally be elated to go uh, to let go of the experience of just having been born the moment you walk into your doctor's or specialist's office. And health information exchange really underpins uh, all of the health reform efforts that we hear about today. Well, Timmy, let me turn to you now. From your perspective, what is the real promise of HIE? Well, Tom, as we move forward with health reform efforts, we will not be successful in bending the health cost curve without transforming our health system into the information age. I know we've talked a lot about um, the need for us to be able to digitize our clinical information, but as we do that, as we move from paper to digital format, we also must make sure that our data is not locked in the proprietary silos that they tend to get locked in. And uh, it really prohibits us to be able to have both a patient-centric view that Christine just re um, relayed to us, but in addition to that, a very important population view. I'm not so sure that our question needs to be about the promise of health information exchange but rather, will we even be able to achieve our vision and the promise of our future state of the U.S. health system without health information exchange? Well, Timmy, as we said up front, you and Christine both were involved in the nation's very first HIE, so it's very appropriate to ask you, how does an organization go about building and selling the business case for HIE? Yeah, I think it's interesting. Um, if you look back, you know, 15 years ago or 13 years ago when we first started the uh, Santa Barbara Health Information Exchange, it was funded by a grant. And many of the health information organizations, using the noun, not the verb, have also been funded by grants. And 
it gives the organization a little bit of a breather room in the or breathing room in the first few years um, to be able to bring the planning um, expertise to this table to be able to cultivate the collaboration that is required at a community level. But what we've learned is that in the very, very immediate um, start of any of these health information organizations, sustainability and the value that they bring to their stakeholders must be um, must be discussed and also to have that commitment up front from the key stakeholders that are there at the very beginning is essential. Um, I think as we look at, uh, this is, there, there is clearly value that stakeholders are going to be able to do, um, be able to obtain from health information exchange, it's quantifying that value and then being able to deliver that value at a cost that um, is sustainable is really the equation that we're all seeking. And Christy, I'd love to get your take on that as well, building and selling the business case. Well, part of the business case is definitely the need to alter the competitive landscape in healthcare to shift from competition for volume to competition for a higher quality and higher quality, lower cost care. And this requires payment reform. So each community that undertakes health information exchange needs to be focused on how the incentives operate in their community and keep the payers, those who control payment, um, at the table. Uh, there's activity certainly at the uh, federal level and at the state level, but there also needs to be com uh, uh, activity at the community and regional level. And I think if I can add to that, um, as we start looking at what type of sustainability models are out there, um, there are, it really varies based on where your health information exchange is located. Um, it varies on the demographics, it varies on the geography, it varies on your population base. And we've seen everything from or organizations coming together and deciding that each of them will understand what their fair share is. And I think it's essential to have both the state and also the federal stakeholders at the table for that discussion. Um, other examples include a taxation, um, a public benefit type of tax that may be on the payers. Um, we've seen a percent, for example, of a, of a transaction of a claim that goes towards health information exchange. I think that um, the discussion that we're having around how health, health reform um, will be implemented in the state and local, both at the state and local level, is also very interesting to watch in that, um, for example, how the medical loss ratio will be calculated for payers could contribute to that public benefit of being able to have a shared infrastructure for health information exchange. Um, we also have examples of some very, I think, innovative pilots across the country that are paying um, based on a query transaction for that, um, for that clinical summary. So, for example, having um, a payer look at a, um, a hospital to be able to bring back based on the query what that clinical summary is for a patient instead of sending electronically and paying electronically, so at a 3 to $5 rate, versus sending somebody out in their car to make that photocopy and bring it back to the home office. Um, just that as a simple transaction um, could serve as a way for us to think about how we're going to pay for exchange. Tim, you used a key word a couple minutes ago, and I asked both of you about this, and that was the word benefits. Christine, I'd love for you to start with this and give us a sense of what you foresee as the top HIE benefits to organizations. We 
really have to tackle the question of benefits one stakeholder at a time. So I'll talk a little bit about providers, health professionals, and hospitals. And it's really just since the 1980s that medicine was corporatized in a sense that uh, corporations did business in, in medical care for the large part. And, and that happened as regulation of the industry declined coming out of the 70s and then market forces and market competition rose. And providers uh, pursued management efficiency and, they, and both the terms market share and productivity became the major drivers in healthcare. And it's really remained that way up until now. So now fast forward 30 years and we're trying to take away part of the culture. We're asking large healthcare organizations who have balance sheets, they have income statements to manage, to stop using the control of information about their, about their customer as a way to create the stickiness in the customer base. And we now are telling them, we're messaging, we want them now to compete on quality. They always cared about quality, but now we're asking them to compete on quality even though we're really at the very early stages of measuring quality. And in reality, most studies have shown that their customer base doesn't really understand quality. Um, so we want them now to coordinate care. We want them to reduce readmissions if they're a hospital or and a, and a doctor that's involved in referring to hospitals. We want to reduce duplicative tests. And all of these lower revenue, because not long ago, a lot of these organizations brought in the ancillary testing, et cetera, into their um, corporation or revenue base and asking them to increase their investment in the very technologies that will speed that revenue reduction. So in the short term, we're asking them to pay for revenue reduction. In the long run, they'll need to learn a new way to compete. But in the short run, it requires a, a leader's sort of willingness to hold their nose and jump and trusting that the competitive landscape will indeed shift to where the investment is good for them and good for their patients. Uh, I see that in the past year, the government's uh, leadership is making good on the promise to change the incentives to increase uh, to increase then the faith of the healthcare providers in the shifting paradigm for payment. But uh, we still have a long way to go to make the case to the full market, and we still have quite a bit of work to do to describe what that new payment methodology will look like that will be an incentive that reinforces uh, what's good for the patient, which is the health information exchange. Those are great examples. And, Timmy, I'd love to get your thoughts as well on the top benefits to organizations. You know, in, in addition to the quality benefits that an organization achieves, there's also, you know, just really kind of bottom line um, cost efficiencies on the technology side. And as you start thinking about moving from a point-to-point -point infrastructure where you need to be able to stand up an interface for every organization that you're going to start um, trading data, that it really does make sense to start thinking about a common infrastructure that will then um, act as an intermediary, much like our claim, our claim system does today, um, to be able to route clinical data where it needs to be. And I think, you know, to give an example, when you think about a state infrastructure where you have both um, Medicaid as well as public health, um, and let's say also an immunization registry, um, to be able to bring all of those organizations together to think about how they're going to be interacting um, electronically with their uh, data providers, which are both going to be at the hospital level, academic institutions, and also large um, provider organizations, that it really makes sense for them to think about a common uh, infrastructure as well. And if you can then take that infrastructure and then share it at the commercial level, then I think you really have a home run. Um, and all of this is really, uh, when you start thinking about what happens at the physician level, where they have an electronic health record. So they have gone forward and made that initial investment and made the adoption 
to be a meaningful user of an electronic health record, what happens next when they're also um, asked to be able to share their information, both at the state and at the federal level, and then also within their community stakeholders and with the patient? And that's where this common infrastructure really starts making a lot of sense. Um, so that the individual physician in those small clinician offices aren't taking the burden of interoperability um, upon themselves. And so there's, there's a real value and that, um, that benefit will, will go back to the stakeholders fairly quickly when we start thinking about doing things together versus individually. Well, again, you both have done a great job outlining some of the benefits, but Timmy, to get to those benefits, there typically are speed bumps. What are some of the common speed bumps that organizations are going to encounter? Well, I think um, what we've really painted so far is this world where we all get together and um, it's very it's easy to be able to make decisions about how we're going to exchange data. But when you get down to brass tacks or, of course, the devil in the details, um, we have to really be very, very focused on what our incremental wins will be right out of the gate. And I think in general that means starting pretty small. Um, whether or not it's at a pilot level, um, that is in a very, very contained space, um, that is a very um, a small investment initially to be able to show success, that seems to be um, one of those real best practices that um, can, re- can, can take hold and then grow um, grow interest and be able to grow our stakeholders coming together. Um, so I think when you think about the speed bump, it is um, it's imperative to to not think really big and to be able to bring together those really small wins. Um, there's also the the balance of what type of policies might be in place um, versus where the technology can go. And what we've seen over and over again is that it's not a technology problem to solve. It is at some level, but once you're able to show and demonstrate that technology can solve some of the some of the um, very very basic use cases, it then moves into the policy side. And um, we've we've run into um, policy barriers at state and and the local level, both at laws and regulations, about how we can. Um, exchange that exchange very simple information. Um, and to give you an example, um, lab data, which is um, generally done at a laboratory, and then the results need to somehow make it both to the physician who ordered it as well as the patient. Um, in some states, that is required to be done right now at a paper level. And in others, um, we've actually, uh, Tennessee is a great example. I was um, working with them a few years ago. And they um, have gone through a complete review of their health information technology laws and regulations. And one, they've made an amendment to their um, their current statute around the ability to be able to share laboratory data, um, not only to the ordering physician, but to the physician that requests it. And I think that um, those types of modernization to our current um, to our ter- current legal structure that needs to take place. And Christian, I'd love to hear your perspective. What are some of the common speed bumps that you see? We already talked about the challenges with the business case, and I think the other clear challenge for me is privacy. Con- uh, convincing the public that health information exchange can be done in a secure way, where they still have control over who sees what element of their health data, um, is a quite it's quite a large hill. Um, it's been observed that financial data is about your assets, what you have but medical data is about you. It's about who you are. And this is another area where we have an accelerated culture change happening. 
Um, before we had widespread insurance coverage um, with the passage of Medicare and Medicaid in 1965, medical information was, close, was closely held really between those person providing care and the patient and, and or their family. And patients were wary when insurers came into the picture, even though they understood that insurers need to know a certain uh, uh, bit of information about their health and their health care in order to pay the bill, um, and that they had the right to some medical information. And, and patients were also wary when employers became insurers and had the same rights. Um, and we know from recent surveys that patients don't particularly trust the government with their health data. So in this situation where health IE occurs between parties other than the patient and their doctor or caregiver, and so we have to um, navigate this privacy landscape carefully and help um, patients understand that the benefits that they gain uh, individually and collectively will uh, outweigh the privacy concerns, um, but they have to be convinced of that. And you have to do that, you know, at a, a community level and then at a national level. And, and we're going to have to prove it by... Uh, having a great track record of security of the data and the data transfer, and also um, a lot of hard work, slogging work about have, have, trying to reconcile, you know, uh, differences in um, in privacy laws across states, um, and, and, and in a way that still allows, you know, the technology solution to uh, function and the patient still to believe that they, that they have the control um, that they seek. Let's bring this down to a practical level now. Timmy, how do you see some of your communities tackling HIE? That's a great question. You know, met most communities today are past the planning phase, um, that they have been able to secure upfront capital and they have a, a distinct plan, they have a, um, an implementation schedule, and they have a budget, and they're performing against that. Um, where we're seeing, you know, how communities are spread across the country, I think you have those that have actually been in the trenches for many years that have made a lot of success, have sustainability, and are now um, expanding that circle to be to make even more of an impact both in their community and also on the state. Um, then you have those that are in the middle that I'll come back to, and then finally you have those that are um, just now beginning to uh, take advantage of some of the federal investments. Um, both in grants as well as state funds to bring stakeholders together to talk about how they're going to not only be able to uh, react to and take advantage of some of the uh, stimulus funds for HIE, but also how they're able to uh, bring together the necessary resources to respond to reform. Um, and then you have those in the middle, and those are the ones that I started um, to talk about initially, where they have very, very, um, very, very distinct plans that they are implementing against. Um, for those that are making some really rapid progress, they have a governance structure that has senior leadership um, from the required stakeholders in the community, those that are seen as leaders and respected leaders, and then also that crosses the um, industry, both re with representation from the consumers representation both from state and local government and representation from the payer, provider, and physician market. Um, they also have uh, working, working uh, committee structures where they have a focus on their clinical aims and what they're, um, what they're going to evaluate themselves against in order to make that clinical intervention given their population. And then they have um, 
consumer outreach committees, and they have technology committees that are wrestling with the details of how to exchange that information. Um, you know, what I think those that we would look at as models of success, as I had mentioned earlier in our discussion, are those that are really not taking off too much initially and are being able to show real wins right out of the gate. Um, I think that there is this tension of making sure that we have everyone singing to the same tune and um, that the collaboration is really strong and that our policies are in place versus where technology can take us. And we need to be able to move quickly on both ends um, because if we take our time on the policy side and governance side, soon what we had planned for the technology will be out of date. So um, that's where we really need to be able to um, bring the two together be able to make immediate wins, immediate strides, and be able to then demonstrate value back to stakeholders. Tammy, if you were to boil it down, what would you say are some of the best practices that you're seeing now from communities? You know, I think I can't emphasize enough um, being able to have a very incremental approach um, where you have achievable goals right out of the gate that are in probably about six months um, chunks. Um, and, you know, that might be looking at just laboratory data, for example, and being able to um, start the exchange of laboratory data. Or it might be that you um, initially look at collaborating with the state or the county level around automating the immunization registry. Um, I think um, once you're able to identify what your interventions are at the community level and at the clinical level, then the technology will follow um, versus the opposite. So that's probably some, one of the, the best-case scenarios. Um, the other best practice would be um, working together with your state and local government to be able to bring them um, to the table up front so that they're, um, they're a significant part of the population of looking at providing care for the underinsured and the uninsured and um, that they have a direct tie back to the state government that's going to require to have um, much of the oversight of the health information exchange. So being able to engage them in the dialogue sooner than later is also um, something that I think um, really helps in the long run. Um, I'd be interested to see what Christine wants to add to that as well. Definitely one of the, um, the most important um, elements is in keeping their executive leadership engaged. So. Um, in, in all sort of large cultural changes, that executive leadership is key, and the leadership needs to extend beyond the organization and exist at the community level, and as Timmy mentioned, in the public and the private sector. And, and those communities that are making progress on HIE are dedicating a large part of carefully chosen leaders' time to managing the change process and, and keeping the band together. Um, they're managing those early wins that Timmy noted and are so critical. They're communicating their successes and their failures because remember, this is, you know, innovation and innovation has failures that are worth, worthy of learning from. Um, they're keeping organizations honest about their common commitment. Um, they're driving the business case and the sustainability plans. Um, and, and really, at the end of the day, you know, um, this is truly a case where a few strong community leaders can make the difference between um, a success or a failure. We also need to add there that um, having the physicians at the table up front or the clinicians is also incredibly important because at the end of the day, it's their workflow that is going to change. And, um, you know, keeping them informed 
having that leadership as part of the discussion is really important. Final question for you, Christine. I'll send this to you first. Based on everything we've talked about, realizing the promise of HIE, what tips would you offer to healthcare organizations to help them realize that full promise? Well, Timmy made some really um, important points about starting small, and, and I don't think you can really overemphasize that. But if you think about it from the perspective of a classic use case, and you say just, just from the beginning, we really want to do is show um, how we're going to make our lab exchange meaningful um, to all the stakeholders and know what's in it for each of the parties and or just, you know, creating you know, a, a, a much clearer view around medications and what medications the patient's on and, and how you're going to avoid um, adverse outcomes related to medications and being very crisp about what do each of the parties get out of this individual uh, piece of the equation that we've decided to take it in the beginning and very deliberate about, okay, but then that ramps up to what next? I think it's the being deliberate part and really not, even though we have in the beginning we have all this federal funding and state funding and foundation funding, et cetera, that's getting a lot of these organizations off the ground, um, it's really about being deliberate about the long run. And um, those organizations that have clear strategies and are able to execute on them and build momentum over time uh, will be the organizations that are the leaders. Um, I would add that many of these organizations are clearly still in startup mode. So treating the organization as a startup mode, not as a not-for-profit initially, um, that that is really important where you are looking at um, hiring the right staff and being able to then look at what your growth demands will be over time, um, that you have um, solid communication plans in place, that you have a business case that includes an exit strategy, much like many startups. Um, what What is it that you're going to be when you grow up? And finally, that you really focus on that governance um, and being able to have the right voices at the table to be able to help drive your success. Timmy, that's well said. I want to thank both you and Christine for your time and your insight today. Thank you. Thank you. We've been talking about health information exchange. We've been talking with Christine Martin-Anderson and Timmy Leslie with Booz Allen Hamilton. For Information Security Media Group, I'm Tom Field. Thank you very much.